Second Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Last week, we considered that living in the love and forgiveness this passage describes is not an option, but rather a command of our Lord for our well-being. When we love and forgive others, we free ourselves from hardness of heart, from harboring bitterness, and from seeking revenge. When we love and forgive others, we enable them to be restored in fellowship with God and the children of God, the church, and to avoid excessive sorrow. Remember, we said that when people are left to themselves, if they're convicted of sin, they will go into depression, they will go into shame, they will go into excessive sorrow. But when the conviction of God comes and we are able to point them to Jesus, they're able to have a relief for their sin. They're able to find life. And instead of going down to the pit, they're brought up to new heights in Christ Jesus. And so we said that when we love others, we enable them to be restored in fellowship with God and with church and with the church or with the body of Christ and that they are able to live with joy. When we live in love and forgiveness, we thwart the devil's schemes. So that's what we were talking about the last time. At this morning, or in this morning's focus, I want to come back to that last point, the idea that we would thwart the devil's schemes. Paul says in verse 10 of this passage, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. What are the devil's schemes? The devil's schemes are to fool us, to make us think that we are doing the right thing by withholding love and forgiveness from each other. Don't we justify what we do when we withhold love and forgiveness? In whatever measure it may be. Right? We, we think we're doing the right thing, and so the devil deceives us. He makes us think that we're doing the right thing. It is a scheme of the devil to do this, and it is something that we need to pay attention to. Now, last week, we referred to Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, that in the last days, because of the increase of wickedness, the agape, the actual godly love that he has shown us, and that we now experience in our midst, the agape love of God would grow cold in the last days. How does godly love grow cold? Well, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 10, just a few verses before that, he explains. He says, many 
will be offended, turn away from the faith, betray and hate each other. When you allow offense to rule your behavior, your love will naturally grow cold. And then, when we are living in that way in offense, it ultimately results in this love of God, love for God, the things of God, growing cold. When I talk about offense here, what I mean is that we are resentful, annoyed, or hurt because of a genuine insult, slander, or wounding from somebody else. Right? There may be a genuine thing where somebody has come against us, they've done something to us, they have offended us in some way, and we are hurt, we are annoyed, we are resentful, we seek revenge. But there's also the fact that offense can happen when we perceive, when we believe, when we think that we have been insulted, slandered, or wounded. Nothing may have happened, the person may not have intended anything, but if we think that they have done that, we get offended. We have this offense. And by offense, I mean what the Bible describes as a stumbling block, as being trapped, as being deceived to behave in a manner that is exactly opposite how the agape love of God is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Remember, as we went through that passage, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, it states that the love of God and the love that comes from God and therefore what is flowing through us to others, that love is not arrogant or rude. It's not inflated with pride. That love of God does not insist on its own way. That love is not selfish or self-seeking. That love does not insist on its own rights or its own way. That love is not irritable or touchy or resentful. That love is not quick to take or give offense. That love does not keep a record of wrongs. In fact, that, loves, that love of God pays no attention to a suffered wrong. Go back and read 1 Corinthians 13 again and just let these truths be in you. Let them be coming to you. Let them be reminding you that that's the way that God describes his love. It is in all these ways that we are to think about the love of God. So how is offense tied to being unloving and unforgiving? And how is that tied to the devil's schemes? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, when Paul is instructing his young ward, Timothy, to be gentle to all, able to teach, and patient, it is so that in humility, Timothy may deal with those that are offended with him. That's the instruction that Paul is giving. He says, there are going to be people who are offended with you. There are going to be people who are going to attack you, who will slander you, who will come against you, who will oppose you. 
And when that happens, you need to be gentle. You need to be able to teach. You need to be patient. You need to be humble. And he says, you must gently correct those who are offended so that they may come to their senses and escape the snare, the entrapment of the devil, having been taken by, captive by him, by the devil, to do his will. Paul is saying when people are offended, they have been trapped by the devil to do his will, the devil's will. Instead of doing the will of God, instead of obeying God, in this case to live in love and forgiveness, the devil traps us to doing, into doing two things. One, to be offensive, to give offense, resulting in broken fellowship. Or two, the devil causes us to be offended, to take offense, and once again, resulting in broken fellowship. And in both cases, the devil's schemes are successful because instead of living in harmony and peace with each other, instead of loving and forgiving so that we would be recognized as Christians by our love for each other, we are left divided, weaker, and ineffective in doing good for ourselves or anyone else. So the devil's schemes are to divide us, to cause us to live in offense. And what happens when we live in offense? What happens if we allow offense to be what rules in our hearts? Well, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 19, it says this, A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city. And contentions are like the bars of a castle. When we are offended, we build walls of self-protection and isolate ourselves. When we are offended, we build fortifications of self-justification and defend ourselves. When we are offended, we land we launch counterattacks on the castles of our offenders. We make sure our castle is strong and then we start attacking the other one, right? All the while, the devil's schemes prevail. So what do we do about offenses? Well, I want to very quickly mention one particular point in terms of what we do as we understand that the devil's schemes are about and then we want to move, I want to move to this point of application or what we can do when we come to the Lord and when we're aware of the devil's schemes. We are to be vigilant of the devil's snares. In this day and age of social media and virtual communities and every advance in communication, you can communicate with people anywhere in the world at any time, uh, literally at any time, right? You can just do that. But ironically, these communications, these abilities have made us more self-centered and less effective in dealing with each other. We have the means of communicating with anybody at any time in any way. And yet, we have actually broken communication. We've broken fellowship. You'll notice that a lot of communication is trying to explain why I didn't mean what I thought you, what you took from that. 
right? Most of our communications are about explaining, oh, but this is what I really wanted to say. We are miscommunicating more often than communicating. We live in a time when there's a greater possibility of misunderstanding and of being misunderstood, of giving offense and taking offense. And so then we have to be vigilant about how, when, where, and why, and with whom we communicate. And when we do communicate, if there's anything at all that is not right in that relationship, in that communication, we have to ask these questions of ourselves. Do I feel that this person has wronged me? Am I finding it difficult to love or forgive this person? Am I seeking to get back at this person? Maybe they did something big. Maybe they did something small. Maybe they don't even know that they've hurt you. But are we looking to get back at them in some way? Am I so hurt by them that I don't want to deal with them? I, I, maybe I communicate, but it's a very perfunctory surface-level communication because I'm not really keen on dealing with this person. Do I feel that they don't deserve to be loved or forgiven? Do I feel that they deserve their punishment? Instead of going directly to my brother or my sister to set things right, am I lobbing attacks from behind my fortified walls through my words or actions? And if the answer to any of these questions is yes, then we really have to see or understand that uh, we are being outwitted by the devil's schemes. You can't justify any of these things. You can't say, well, I'm not talking to them because they don't deserve my forgiveness because they shouldn't be loved right now because if you're saying any of those things, you have fallen into the devil's snare. So what do we do if we're offended? Well, the Bible helps us to understand that we open the door, open the door of that castle. We open the door of all those walls that we have built we open the door of our lives for the Lord. You know, it's interesting that in the book of Revelation, right at the beginning of the book, God leads John to see these visions and to understand these things that are going to happen in the future. And there's much, of course, that is uh, directly applied to the present, the time that John was writing this. And there's much that applies to us in our present to us in our churches today. And there's much that, of course, applies for the future. If you have studied the book of Revelation, it is a fascinating book. It has much to tell us and to teach us and so on. And this morning, I'm not going into all the description of that. I'm not going into the seven churches that are described in the first few chapters. But right at the end of that passage, that section, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 through 20, the angel of the Lord or the message of the Lord is coming to the church in Laodicea. And this is what the words are. These are the, this is what the scripture says. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm 
neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Very often we use this last verse there to talk about the unbeliever. And we say, if you will listen to the voice of the Lord who is standing at your door and knocking and will open your heart and receive him, he will come into your life and you can be saved. Now, there's truth to that statement. There's truth to the fact that the Lord invites us, the Lord woos us, the Lord calls us, the Lord sheds his grace to us, abroad to us, and he loves us so much that he invites us to come into a relationship with him. That he says, come and accept me, come and believe in me, come and know in your heart and confess with your mouth that I am Lord and you will be saved. That is a wonderful invitation of the Lord. It is a wonderful truth of the Lord. It is wonderful uh, that we would share that with others. Behold, the Lord stands at the door and knocks, open the door and let him come in. But you understand from this passage that it's actually written to believers. He's saying to believers, you've become cold. Your love has grown cold. You have lived according to your own ways. And you think you're good. You think you're right. You think you're rich. Rich in good works. Rich in the blessings of the Lord. Rich even materially or in whatever ways that you want to define it. But he says, you are poor. You are wretched. You are pitiful. You are naked. And now, I'm standing at the door and knocking. Open the door that I may come in. And when I come in, I will eat with you. As you, can, as you know, even from all of these other instances in the Bible, when the Bible speaks of eating together like that, it is the fellowship that is taking place. It's not about what's on the menu. It's about who's at the meal. And so there, here is Jesus saying, I want to come and to eat with you. Why? Because he wants to restore fellowship. We sang at the beginning, we talked about it in prayer time, and we, we continue to pray about this in the church. We desire for people to be in fellowship with the Lord, in relationship with the Lord. If you've known him and you have walked away, then the Bible is calling us back to him and saying, I stand at the door and knock. Open the door that I may be restored in fellowship with you. If you've never known the Lord Jesus, if you've never yielded to him, if you've never submitted your life to him, 
then the Bible continues to encourage you to say, come and establish this relationship with him so that he will be your Lord and you will be his child, that you will know him as your heavenly father, that you will have committed all your ways to him. Oh, the Bible is clear that it is the fellowship with him that he requires. And when we have fellowship with him, we have fellowship with those that are his. We have fellowship with his body, with Christ the head and the body of Christ, which is the church. We have fellowship with one another. We don't come together on a Sunday morning, regardless of which Sunday it is, Resurrection Sunday or not, whichever Sunday that we would come together, every Sunday that we come together, we don't come together in fellowship for because of any other reason than the fact that the Lord did what he did to restore us in relationship to him and to one another. And how does he do it? He says he redeems us by his blood. Oh, hallelujah. On the cross, he shed his blood so that the price, the penalty that was necessary for our sins could be paid. And by that blood, we have been redeemed, bought by the blood of the Lamb. So when in this passage it says, come to me and buy from me pure gold that has been refined in the fire, what's your currency? What is, what is it that you would have? You would take your riches from this earth, your gold, your silver, your money in the bank, and say, Lord, I want to buy something from you. I want to buy some grace from you. I want to buy some blessings for you. How much would it be worth? How much will you offer? There's nothing that we can bring to the Lord and say, Lord, I deserve this. I merit this. I have earned this. Bless me. Instead, we say, Lord God, we receive the blood of Jesus by which we have been redeemed, by which we have been saved, and the blood that is now offered and sacrificed to you by virtue of that blood. The priests that would bring the blood on the sacrifice, or the, the animals that would be sacrificed and offer the blood by the token of that, by the propitiation, by the substitution of that blood that was offered up in our place, we are able to come to the Lord and say, Lord, because Jesus paid the price, show grace to me, show mercy to me, bless me. Oh, Lord God, restore me in fellowship with you. Give me your riches. He redeems us by his blood. He makes us rich by his sacrifice. The Bible says that when he was poor, he became poor for our sakes, that in his poverty, we might become rich. We enjoy the riches of God, the provision of God, the, the very wealth of the Father because of what Jesus did. And then when we are made rich by his grace, by his sacrifice, we are the recipients of that mercy, of that kindness, of that grace that continues to us even when we don't deserve it. So every single day, we don't come to the Lord Jesus one time and say, thank you, well, I'm glad that you did this for me, I'm all set, now we're, I'm good. No, we come to him every single day and we say, Lord God, I appropriate, I freshly appropriate the sacrifice that you have made so that I may continue to receive your mercy and your kindness to me that are new to me every morning. And I will receive your grace that overflows, your abundant grace that overflows, that saves a wretch like me, that will come and clothe me with garments of praise. I receive your righteousness that puts on me the robes of righteousness so I'm no longer naked. And 
and I am filled with your presence, with your Holy Spirit, so that I may have life, and I have it more abundantly. Oh, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And you know, when we come to him in this way and we're restored in relationship in this way and we're not holding our walls all tightly shut, you know, and fortifying ourselves, we've opened those doors out to him. What does he do? He doesn't just leave us in the way that we are. He continues to correct us in love. He rebukes us. He, he changes us. He says, look, I see what you need. You don't even know what you need. But I know what you need. And I correct you and I mold you and I shape you. And as you get this gold from me, as you get these garments from me, as you are trans being transformed, I give you the eye salve so that your eyes are opened. And what do you see when, my when your eyes are opened? You see who you have offended. You see who has been hurt because of what you have said, what you have done. And you are able to say, Oh Lord God, transform me. Change me. Bring me to you so that I may indeed see the salvation of the Lord. This morning, I want to tell you that we have to respond and apply the word of God that we have heard by avoiding the devil's snare of offense. The devil's snare of offense is what we need to be vigilant about. But I could have put this point up on the slide here or made this point by saying we respond and apply the word of God that we have heard by loving and forgiving others. Because that's how you avoid the devil's snare. How do you avoid offense? You love and forgive. Even when there's no reason to. Even when there's no motivation to do it. Even when people have hurt you terribly. You would not live in offense, but you would love and forgive. And by the way, this point of saying, yeah, we could have just stated this as we, we can love and forgive and so on. We could have even stated this by saying we respond and apply the word of God by being willing to suffer. Because guess what? When you make a commitment to love and forgive, when you make a commitment to live in love and forgiveness, not to live in offense, guess what will happen? You will suffer. <laughs> you think that when you live that way, when you live in love and forgiveness, everything will go well. Jesus said in Luke 17, 1, offenses will come. Stumbling blocks will come. Temptations to sin will come. The world will be against you. They will persecute you. They will say mean things to you. They will slander you. They will do all sorts of things to hurt you. It will happen. So when you say, I am committed to love and to forgive, I am committed to live in this way without giving or taking offense, guess what? you will suffer. So just be prepared. And when offenses come, you don't choose to open, or to rather, you don't choose to fortify the walls of your heart. You don't choose to say, oh, I'm going to withdraw. But rather, you open the door of your life to the Lord Jesus. And you say, you come, Lord Jesus. 
Come and do all that you mean to do in me so that, Lord, you will cause me to live in this kind of love. The Bible tells us that many people were offended with Jesus. Jesus was a stumbling block, an offense to the Jews. The religious leaders were offended with him because, he, because of where he was from. They were offended with him because of his family. They were offended with him because of his lack of formal training. What does he know? And they were offended with him because he was a threat to their power. Jesus' family was offended with him because of what he said. And they even tried to stop him from saying what he was saying. They said he's out of his mind. They were offended with him. Jesus' followers, many who followed him, were offended by his teachings. And even those who thought that Jesus could be the Messiah were offended when he was hung on a cross like a criminal instead of triumphing as a king over his oppressors. They said, what kind of king is this? What kind of Messiah is this? We are offended by this man. He is hanging here on a cross in shame. John 6, 66 tells us that many of the, when many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him, Jesus asked the 12 disciples if they wanted to leave too. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. This past Friday during our worship time, we were reminded that Jesus' first words, the first of his seven sayings after he was hung on the cross, the first words from the cross, his words of eternal life were this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It is because Jesus came into this world to save sinners, to forgive human beings of their sin, that he had to go to the cross. Jesus was willing to suffer every offense. He did not give in to the devil's temptations. He was not snared in the devil's schemes. He loved and forgave us. Because he loved and paid the price, because he loved and forgave, because he finished the work on the cross, and then because he was risen again, because he came back to life to finish the triumph over death and the grave, we have life this morning. We have joy this morning. We have this truth that rings in our hearts and in our ears. We, our eyes are opened and we're able to say, Oh Lord God, I thank you that your love and forgiveness has been given to me. And because I have been forgiven much, I can forgive others. I don't have to live in offense. I can live in love and forgiveness. That is the glorious truth. That is the glorious truth that the Lord has given us today. And as we sing, as we rejoice, I'm just going to read a scripture here from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9 to close us out. But I want you to pay attention to these words. Just listen to these words as a way to summarize, as a way to pull together all the things that I've just been talking about. And then we're going to sing like we did just a little time ago. And we're going to say, oh, what a glorious day that the Lord has called me to himself. That instead of being in the grave, instead of going down to the pit, instead of being offended, instead of living in offense, oh, I have been saved. I have been brought to new life in Christ Jesus. But 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9 says this, 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's stand together. Let's sing and worship. 